Recovery from Anything features real stories that some listeners might find distressing. Check the show notes for specific content warnings and information on support services. Now I look back at it, it's like, what place was I at there? I, I feel really sad for that man of how I must have been feeling then. You know, I wasn't aware of any of it. It's almost like I was in a trance going through it, you know. All those things had happened and I still couldn't give up drinking. Welcome to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. When it comes to my drinking and all the problems I have with it, I refer to myself as an alcoholic a bog-standard, garden-variety alcoholic. There's nothing ambiguous about my drinking. It doesn't lie somewhere on a scale between two extremes. It is the extreme. My problem is that when I start drinking, I simply cannot stop, no matter how severe the consequences. My alcohol consumption defied all common sense, and I would be compelled to drink it at the worst possible times. An hour before a job interview? Drink. Seeing my entire family for Sunday lunch? Drink. Quiet coffee morning with a friend who doesn't drink? Drink. I knew I was an alcoholic when I realised, no matter how much I wanted to stay sober, I would always, sooner or later, wind up drunk. But not everyone who drinks to excess is an alcoholic, nor is everyone who has a desire to change their relationship with alcohol. And you certainly don't need to be a problem drinker to remove it from your life. In most cases, excessive drinking is a coping mechanism, a way to deal with stress or boredom. It provides temporary relief from difficult emotions. It helps us escape. But no matter where on the scale a person's alcohol consumption lies, one thing is always true. If it does reach a point of excess there will be negative health and social consequences. Here's David Wilson. As a little baby, we lived in Addington. I don't remember that there, but we moved to Croydon, where I spent a lot of my childhood there. I went to a really nice primary school, a small school as well, two or 300 kids there, but my mum and dad never had any money. I was the one who always had the second-hand clothes. It didn't really bother me then. I didn't really know any different. Although the dinner was on the table and the second-hand clothes were ironed, there was no, come here, give me a hug. Oh, I'm really proud of you. There was no, I love you, Dave. It was a very practical upbringing. But then when I got a little bit older, I went to the big school up the road, which was 1,200 pupils, and it was horrific. There, there was a lot of fighting there. And my mum actually got um, mugged down the alleyway because we had a big apple tree. And she saw the kids shaking the tree and all the apples fell off, and she went out to stop doing them. And she got beaten up, basically. So dad decided enough was enough, and we moved to a place called Cost Shorten. And that's where I kind of spent my teen years. But I started in the second year of that school. I was kind of a shy kid. I wasn't streetwise. Mum and dad kind of kept me in, you know. 
and that was a rough school as well. Uh, and all the rough lads started coming to me. Come on, Dave, this we we go up the shops and we drink and that. And I kept away from it. But unfortunately, when I was fourteen, I got up one day, and I found a letter on the table, and it was from my mum. And it basically said, "I've left your dad. I'll be in touch." Uh, and at 14, it was quite a, a tough thing, you know. And I came home that day from school. My dad was upset and, and didn't know what to do, really. When mum left, she left for someone else, right? I didn't see her for a year. My dad met someone, and they used to see each other a lot. And I felt completely on my own. And I remember looking at my dad to say, like, are you going to support me here? And he just looked away and walked into the kitchen. And I walked out the door and I burst out crying. And I've never, ever felt so alone in all my life because I thought I've lost my mum. I've lost my dad now. And I was only then 15 and I didn't know where to turn. I was broken then. And that's when these lads were like, are you going to come up the shops? And I thought, fuck it. I, yeah. I've got nothing else, right? And they took me under their wing, drinking. And because I was never the fighter, I was like the funny one. That was my role, to make everyone laugh. And when I had a drink, I was even funnier. So I, I was that kind of bloke in the group. And it made me feel accepted. It made me feel wanted, a part of something. And that was what changed everything for me. And I don't regret that in a way because I really become quite streetwise because I was a bit of a, um, I wouldn't say wet blanket, but I I was like quite insular. I didn't have any confidence and that knocked it out of me as well. So, you know, being with them kind of shaped me for further years to come, you know. But the low self-esteem, the low self-worth carried on throughout and then I kind of went into my 20s and it was that normal kind of drinking then. It it was clubbing, local pub, but never really was that much of a problem, you know. And when I was that age, I would always get up and go to work and just work it off, you know. But towards my mid to late 20s, I bought a flat in Sutton um, up the road and my neighbour there, uh, I knew he liked to drink, but um, he said, come down the local pub. And it was a Young's pub called the Newtown. And uh, I went in there and it was a funny place. It was like, felt like home as soon as I went in there because there was a public bar and a saloon bar, which I don't think you get these days. But the public bars where all the workers went, like the builders, plasterers, plumbers, mechanics, and the saloon bars where like the solicitors and the estate agents went, the suits we called them. And it was soon after that that they realised I loved to drink because I used to drink quick. So they nicknamed me Glugs because I could down five, six, seven pints in an hour uh, and then go home again. One day someone said to me, you're always pissed, Dave. Like, you're always drunk. And it kind of touched a nerve of me, you know, because I'd never been called out on my drinking. And it wasn't long after that that I thought, you know what, I'm I'm going to have two or three, and then I'm going to go over the office and get some takeouts and have a couple at home. And that's the worst thing I've ever done in my life because I started getting used to that. 
Um, so I used to buy it back in the day. You could get a cider called Diamond White, and it was like 8.4%. And I started off buying four, but then one day I went in there and it was like eight cans for five quid. So I thought I'd just get them. So I was actually drinking in the pub, then going home and drinking eight cans of Diamond White, and it was like petrol. Do you know what I mean? And when I was 40, uh, I moved, and it was two or three miles from the pub. And that's where it really started to go wrong because I didn't go to the pub. The pub near me, I didn't like. And um, back then, as does the supermarket, were doing three bottles of wine for 10 quid. Right. And I wasn't really a wine drinker, but I thought, you know what? I'll, I'll have a go. And so I was drinking a bottle and a bit, and that went to two bottles. And probably within two or three months, I was starting on the third bottle. And that gave me a different kind of hangover. You know, I felt a lot like rougher. And now I put it, put on weight as well. Like I was putting on weight. So I did the old Google, uh, what alcohol is really low on calories up hot vodka. So I bought half a bottle of vodka, drank that in about 10 minutes. I thought, well, I'm going to have to go out. So I walked down the office again, different one. Uh, and I bought another half. But it wasn't long before I started buying bottles, drinking them. And then I started buying litre bottles. And that's when my life changed because I ended up not remembering my 40s because I got to a stage that I was drinking a litre a night, which even when I say that sounds revolting, but my tolerance got up. And also I stopped like socialising. I become a recluse, really. And I kind of liked it in a way. I kind of romanticised it. Like this world I'd built for myself was my castle that I would go home to and I'd put Pink Floyd on and I'd lay there wailing away on my sofa, getting more and more drunk, feeling sorry for myself and then laughing like a loony tune, you know, like it was a weird existence. And I used to lock myself in on a Friday afternoon and come out Monday morning feeling like absolute hell, not even knowing how I was going to get through that morning, let alone the week, to then drink that night to get up again. And, you know, for me to lose my 40s, even now, is is a hard pill to swallow, you know? I don't think I'd ever come to terms with the knock-on effect of mum leaving, what that had done to me. The weird thing is, when they say you drink to block out your feelings, I did do that. But when I drank to that extent, it made me think about what had happened more. And I kind of thought about it and wallowed in a lot of misery with it. And I felt the really, really hard done by lad. And I'd had some failed relationships and... I got fed up with the pub as well. So I became like cocooned in my misery. I kind of morphed into this chatty businessman in the day running my business and into this recluse where I wallowed in my own doom and misery. And I loved it. I really loved that numbing out. I, I really struggled to explain it so someone would get it but it was almost like getting into this 
cocoon of, and the doors would shut, the more pissed I would get. And then no one could get to me. But that didn't last long because all of a sudden the doors would be wedged open and it's like, right, reality here. You, you know, it'd be three o'clock in the morning. I'm thinking, oh God, I've got to leave in three hours. And I'm absolutely hanging. And so I would get through the day to go back to them. Before I knew it, one week went into a month, a month went into six months, then a year. And then I was 43, 44, 45, another foul relationship because of my drinking. And my decade completely vanished into oblivion. When I look back at it now, I can't exactly explain why. It's almost like I'd just become accustomed to that lifestyle that I kind of loved and hated. It was that love-hate relationship. The numbing in the beginning of the drinking was wonderful, but the bit after was terrible, like absolute. You know, I, I used to drink it quick. I, I would start drinking at five and I could do the litre bar past eight. And then I was so drunk, I, I didn't even think about getting more. I'd just pass out in my work clothes and wake up at two, three, and literally all the lights are on, the telly's on, and I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? It's like committing the same crime, isn't it? And, and you regret the crime and you think, actually, I haven't been caught here because I'm on my own indoors. So you commit it over and over again. If you was in a pub, they'd probably like literally get you in the boot of a car and put you in rehab. But because I was on my own, that was the world I created. So no one ever knew about it. And I think if ever I died and they went into the house, they would see the real issue with the bottles everywhere. And, you know, and I don't think anyone knew the extent of my drinking at all. Then I was asked to do a TV show through my job, I was in the carpet game and I landed a gig on 60 minute makeover. And at, at the time I was like, how am I going to manage to do that when I drink as much as I do? But when I got there, I realized that they all loved a beer. They all stayed up late drinking. So I fitted in. It was perfect for me. So, you know, we used to stay up till one in the morning drinking and, and the times I knew it's going to be an early one, I'd sneak a couple of bottles of wine in Miss suitcase and I'd always make sure I had enough you know and then I met someone and it was a quick relationship and I sold my house really really quickly actually within a few months of meeting her and I realized I needed to sort my drinking out and I sold my house within six weeks there was no chain either side and the nearer it got to me moving in the more I was thinking I'm leaving this to the last minute. Like every day I used to go, I sort it out tomorrow. I sort it out tomorrow and I never did. So moving in day, I was still having this big, massive problem with drinking. And I moved in like that. And I remember the first week I went completely cold turkey and I was going up the wall. Uh, it was really, really hard for me, you know. But gradually I started bringing it in, you know, drinking on a Tuesday, drinking on a Thursday. Uh, and then after a while, I kind of carried on. Never really vodka, though. I cut that out, but it was wine, beer, cider. And it started really impacting into the dynamics in the house. And I remember a real pivotal point was in 2018 when I had a really, really tough year. But at Easter, 
things were really fractured indoors. I wasn't managing well with the family set up. I was on antidepressants, ramipril for my blood pressure, statins for my cholesterol, acid reflux, like medicated up to the hill. And there was a big argument indoors over something silly like the PlayStation or something silly. And I, I just left. I said, I can't do it. Right. And I got in the van and I just drove and I ended down in Eastbourne. Right. And it was early as well. It was on the Good Friday. Uh, I had nowhere to stay. I put the van down a side street that I thought I can just leave it there. Um, headed straight for the pub. Right. So I went in this pub, which was like a Witherspoons thing. Ordered a pint of Stella. It's like eleven in the morning, and it was it was actually quite hot then. It was for April, and I found a table outside. I had a bag on me as well, and I was sitting there at this table, and I was thinking, "Oh my god, I'm going to lose this table if I go and get another drink." But this bloke was sitting next to me, and I said, "Do you mind if I, you look after this this bag?" No, no, mate, you're fine. After that, he became my best fake mate. His mates turned up. Like, all oh, obviously regulars, about 16 pints later, 10 o'clock that night, I had a cracking suntan, but I was absolutely slaughtered. And I thought, I've got nowhere to sleep. It's Easter weekend. I know it would be great to see the stars on the beach. I romanticised this whole thing, right? Went in the co-op next door. Don't know how they served me, but they did. Bottle of vodka and a big bag of bloody crisps and that. Headed for the beach. I didn't even have a big coat, it, it, like this light thing. And I sat on the beach. I was looking at the moon on the sea, and it was lovely. And I passed out. Woke up at three, cut on my head, like where I'd fallen over, like trying to get up, probably pissed. And then the next morning... I was on the pier in the bar there. I think it opened at nine o'clock or something stupid in there. Can I have a pint of Peroni, please? Oh, we, we uh, on the card, it's 12.50 minimum. All right, three pints of Peroni, please. And I started again, and I went all the way through four days of that. Uh, I don't know how I didn't die. I was ill, and I thought, I've got to get myself home. My phone had gone flat. And I drove back. I don't even remember driving back. I mean, it was a ridiculous... I wasn't, like, drinking that morning, but I drank for four days. And I got back, and it felt like I'd been away a month. And I walked in the door, and I went to hug my then-wife, and it was the cleaner just standing there. I, don't, I was delirious. And I went out into the office in the garden and I just broke down. I, I was crying for about two hours. And I managed to get an appointment at the doctor's either that night or the night after. And uh, I was in there an hour. And I, I suppose I lasted two days without drinking. And then I started again, you know. Then the builder knocked us for a lot of money, like thousands of pounds. I'd sold my Rolex to cover the cost of that and had that stolen on eBay uh, and then my mum fell over and hurt herself ended up in hospital and ended up dying a couple of months later and, and I just thought I've had enough now you know so I was on a complete bender for that year
And what was interesting, all those things had happened and I still couldn't give up drinking. Now I look back at it, it's like, what place was I at there? I, I feel really sad for that man, me then, of how I must have been feeling then. You know, I wasn't aware of any of it. It's almost like I was in a trance going through it, you know. And I could have been killed in Eastbourne. I could have died on the beach. I could have been robbed. And, you know, anything could have happened to me. But I could have died from alcohol poisoning. The amount I, I drank, you know, I could have crashed on the way home. And then Christmas came. Uh, I was 20 stone. I don't know what that is in kg, 125 or whatever it is, kg. You know, I was three and a half, four stone overweight. I looked ill. I was ill. New Year came, another hangover, another day. And then I got a text from my friend, Piers, Monday morning, 7th of January, 2019. How do you feel like joining me in locking the booze on the head for three months? And I looked at it and I just laughed. I was like, I can't, I cannot even do three days. What are you talking about? But that's coming from me, not him. All he saw was someone really, really struggling, didn't look well, and he wanted to support me. It kind of um, planted a seed in my head, and it, it sort of manifested throughout the day. And I remember about five o'clock, I pulled over in South Wimbledon, this little lay-by thing, and I read it again. and. I started asking myself questions. I wonder how I would feel in three months. I wonder how I'd look. I wonder how my relationships would be, my health, you know, my mental health. So I put the phone down and I, I drove to his house and I walked in and he was standing there as a big man, pillar of strength. And I looked at him and I said, let's do it. Let's do it. And he shook my hand and I left there and I saw a neighbour and the neighbour said to me, do you want to come in with a footy, mate? The, and I've got some beers in the fridge. I said, I'm not drinking. And, you know, a lot of people say that's spontaneous sobriety when you give up on the day. But throughout that year, I kept repeating to myself, I know I've got to do something about it. I've got to do something about it. And from then, uh, I'm now four years, four months sober, I think. I've never, ever had a drop of alcohol, right? But it's not been a straight road for me. You know, lots happened in that time. You know, the first two or three months was up and down because, you know, to go from drinking that amount, a lot of people say to me, how come you didn't have serious withdrawals? How did you not have seizures in that? And I've, I've spoken to William Porter about it, who wrote Alcohol Explained, and he said, because I'm a big lad and I work physically hard, that I'm used to working off the hangover. My, my body's got used to getting rid of the alcohol quickly, right? So I kind of cracked on with it. And I created my Instagram page, and then people started coming to me and saying, I really relate to what you're saying. And I was sharing my journey, and... People were DMing me and it made me feel good to, to reply and say, well, look, actually, I'm feeling a lot better now. Life's changing for me and it's only been a month and I'll see changes already, you know. Um, and I just grew that page. I was a guest on a couple of podcasts. 
I went to some events and then I held my own event. There was like 80 people came to that event as someone flew in from Germany. I did um, the London to Portsmouth bike ride, London to Brighton bike ride, and then London to Paris all in a month in the September. And then it come up to my year anniversary and it's like, yes. And then just after that, I had a massive slump. It was like, oh, is that it then? And I start to doubt myself. It's like, hmm, is this bit boring, actually? It's like this huge crescendo to this one-year thing. And I remember plummeting into this bit of a dark place. What Dave is describing here is pretty common. In the sober community, we call the initial euphoria of sobriety the pink cloud. It's the honeymoon phase where you're overjoyed to have your life back. You go through a perspective shift, and for the first time in a really long time, you're hopeful for the future. The problem with the pink cloud is that it doesn't last forever. Once those ecstatic feelings wear off, you're left with all the emotions you were running from in the first place, and the return of managing daily life can come as a shock. My pink cloud lasted about 18 months, When I first got sober, it was as if all my problems had finally been solved. But I developed an unrealistic expectation that recovery was easy. So when my mental health began to decline, I was unprepared. I slipped into a major depressive episode, and I couldn't understand how I could be sober, but at the same time, feel hopeless. For me, I bounce back by reaching out for help and joining a 12-step program. For Dave, it was developing his self-confidence and trusting in himself. I think the biggest lesson is to believe in myself, right? Because we can do the practical stuff. We can abstain from it. We can have early nights. We can read the books, listen to the podcasts. You know, we can do all that stuff, right? But self-belief was massive for me. And there were times I started to lose that faith in myself. You know, there were times like that after a year thing. You know, other times when things went drastically wrong um, that I started to doubt myself. But it was like, come on, mate, you're better than this. You've done so well up to now. And that's what put me through all these difficult times is self-belief, which comes from better self-esteem, better self-worth. It's like I value myself now. And and I knew that's what I had to work at as well. Because, you know, you have a decade of drinking litres and litres and litres of vodka. You're going to look in the mirror every day as look at yourself as a complete piece of shit. And I did. The day when you look in the mirror and say, you're all right, you are. Is a big, people don't really talk about that side of sobriety. They go, oh, look at my skin, look at my hair. You know, like that side of sobriety, when you actually begin to see a change in how you feel about yourself is one of the biggest rewards, you know. I like myself because the thing is, um, I, I, I am aware of my core values now. You know, like I used to discard them all the time. It's like, oh, all, all the, the fake things of my life would be, yeah, I'm a right laugh to be out with and people like me because I can get drunk with them and I'll always buy the in-betweeny rounds and 
all this. And now it's like, actually, I've got integrity. I'm honest. And when I stopped drinking, I kind of went back to the 14-year-old standing there. When mum left, and I gave him a big hug. And, and you hear about visiting your inner child, but I I almost did that in real time. I visualised myself going back and saying, look, things aren't going to pan out for you how you expect, but they will work out in the end. And you will do some good work with your life, but it's a rough old road ahead. You know, I've got photographs of me at 14, and I look at him and I've, I think, you poor fucker. Like, you really are in for a, a, a tough life. But when you come out the other side, the resilience of us drinkers is incredible. The scrapes we've got out of that getting up at six to go to work when you're hanging out your ass and, and like literally doing it and getting by in life, you know, with no money. People are stronger than, than they think. And that's what I always say to people. You have resilience. You have strength. You you can do this. You just got to believe in yourself. And that is like day one. I can actually change my life from today. I was fifty four when I stopped drinking. A lot of people go, oh, "I've been doing it all my life now. What's the point?" But everything has changed. My whole life has changed, and I believe I'm going to live to a grand old age now, where I probably wouldn't be here now if I was still drinking. There's just one question that I'm asking everyone at the end of of my little chat, and that's, um, what does recovery mean to you? Getting my life back. It's an interesting thing, right, because I don't really use the word recovery. I, I use the word discovery, and that's how I look at my entire sobriety, that I'm discovering my life back. And that's how I look at it, is discovery. It's like I was looking down at the floor, Everything was dark. And when I stopped drinking, I raised my head and I saw the view and I saw the opportunities and the sun came out. Life is just completely different now. You know, it's brighter. I feel healthier. Everyone says that I look 10 years younger than my pictures of when I was drinking. You know, I've lost weight. And I just look at life differently. And my mental health is just a million times better. In fact, I don't take antidepressants anymore. There's nothing wrong with them if, if they serve a purpose, but I don't need them anymore. I'm off all my medication now. You know, I eat really well. I hydrate. I exercise. I'm just, a, I think, um, a much better person in myself. You've been listening to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review the show and join the community on Instagram at Recovery From Anything. You can find out more about this week's storyteller or submit a story of your own on our website, recoveryfromanything.com. Thank you for listening.